Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. On this episode of Damsels in the DMs. You could watch yourself get stronger. You could watch yourself make more muscle. You could watch yourself like body. And it, it just, it sounds so silly to someone who maybe hasn't experienced it. But it was much more than just like biceps and abs. It was like I was doing something voluntarily that was very pure. There was no outside factors. It was I was making myself better. And I felt so much more confident. I felt so much more better about myself. And it wasn't even a vanity thing. I'm sure it played a role. But it was much more about like I could hold myself accountable for the first time in my entire life. I was a terrible student. I was, you know, I was a good athlete, but I, I never invested myself in it. I just got away with whatever kind of natural abilities I had. And this was something that there was, I was certainly not genetically, my mom's 4'11 and mm. like 80 pounds. My dad's really obese. So I have no gifts for like bodybuilding. I have thin bones and I'm, you know, chicken legs and stuff, but I could see myself building muscle and bit and my posture was getting better. And I was standing taller and it was huge for me. It was, it was so, it, it, it alleviated psychological and emotional pain. Mm. as well as like giving me this physical strength. You know, the drugs and the alcohol obviously derailed that. But once I got sober and really committed to it, that became immediate. Like I just brought it over as, a, as an integral part of me and my recovery, you know? This message is intended as a reminder that we are not licensed professionals, not psychiatrists or psychologists. If you have a serious problem, please seek professional help. The National Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. There's some damsels in the DM. Yes, queen. <laughs> Tell us what's the vibe. Uh -huh. What's the there's some damsels in the DM. Yeah. Please tell us what's the vibe. DMs, DMs, yeah we see them, yeah we read them. DMs, DMs, we don't need them, we just leave them. Please. Yeah. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Damsels in the DMs. I'm Lauren. And I'm Alejandro. Hello, hello. Alejandro, you had a big meeting this week. I'm dying to hear how it went. Can you share on the pod or no? Oh my goodness. Well, I am, yes, I did have a meeting uh, this past week and it was my first meeting with an agent to talk about commercial representation. And they confirmed the other day that they would like for me to, yeah, they were making me an offer. And I'm so pumped. I'm so thrilled. I just, I don't even know. It's, it feels like everything is happening all at once everywhere, and it's just a really cool mixture of stuff happening. I don't know. Never forget that I'm your original agent. <laughs> of course. How was your week? What have you been up to? Yeah, I don't even know if I got to tell you that I was in LA because I was filming in a commercial yesterday in my dream role of dog mom naturally oh um, did ernie make it did ernie make no, it no no everybody keeps asking me if ernie was in it but no i was the mom to three shiba shiba inus and mm. they're actually called the shiba bros on instagram they are delightful i love them anyway it was amazing because i got to play with all these dogs and um landed at 5 30 in the morning yesterday and then had school at 10 a.m so it's been like a whirlwind today just getting back into the swing of things but you know, it's nice to be doing what we love, so I can't complain. 
it is absolutely nice to be doing what we love and to be getting into you know those morning routines and healthy habits that help us stay focused and holding ourselves accountable to what we say we're gonna do and even you know having fun with those childhood curiosities that mm. sometimes linger into adulthood and it's amazing when when the magic erupts from those moments because yeah if it's, we continue growing in a really beautiful and organic way if you had all the time in the world and could pick up a childhood hobby that you're not already doing what would it be if I could pick up a childhood hobby, then I would. You know what? I saw something on Instagram the other day, and it was like kind of like a mixture of ASMR, but not really. But um, they. Isn't that what you do on this podcast? Just kidding. Kind of. I mean, <laughs> um, all I need is some fake nails to scratch the microphone with. But um, no, there was a post that I saw where it was almost like it reminded me of making um, mazes with marbles did you ever have like a marble set where you had like the shoots or the slides and like little plastic pieces? i didn't have one but i used to play at my friend's houses so i know what you're talking about well i used to love those and for some reason i started seeing these things on social media recently where like instead of it being like exactly how i used to play with these devices or these toys or whatever the marble thing it's like these contraptions that allow this like gold metal or like yeah metallic ball to like drop and it plays every step that the ball hits is in alignment with a song that plays so like it's oh my i i gotta send it to you but it's i don't know i don't know why that popped into my head because you know writing storytelling acting making books like those are already things that i'm doing now <laughs> so like i couldn't really provide that answer but whatever what's one of yours um, probably I would play softball. I miss playing softball. Oh, were you infield, outfield? I was the catcher. <gasps> oh, that's have you like never this... heard about how I was captain of my softball team? I'm shocked this has never come up. I'm shocked as well. That oh my god. So what we need to have a remake of a league of their own and you need to be in it. I mean, oh my god. Wait, but that seems like the scariest position. Seriously. I know it was, you know, it was kind of crazy about it. And I actually think that this says a lot about uh, the way I would become as a person. So the way that I became catcher was because they, the girl who was the catcher got hurt really badly. And they were like, Oh, Lauren, you're on the bench. Why don't you go in? It was like my first day ever playing softball. So I'm like, Oh yeah, I'll go in. I get hurt really badly. And I come off the field and I'm crying. And my dad is like, Oh, she's never going to play softball again. And then I was like, no, no, I want to go back catcher because like, <laughs> I just can't, I'm too persistent. I need to like keep trying and try again until it works out. And that was my position from like eight until 18. I love that. And keep trying and trying again. I think that's one of the messages, one of several messages that our guest today had uh, an opportunity to share about. And I'm excited for listeners to, to get, a glimpse of the ongoings of Mike's mind and his amazing journey. I mean, from broadcasting to getting into radio, to now podcasting and continuing to grow his family and the farm. Like there's so many different pieces of his life that I'm super, super geeked for, for everyone to hear about. Truly, Mike has had an iconic career from being on Dancing with the Stars, live with Kelly and Ripa, having his own radio show, to now hosting a podcast on our Believe Network family. Um, we're truly so lucky to get him on the podcast today. 
And I think that he really details some interesting parts of his journey that people may not be familiar with, or it's certainly different than the type of content that we usually cover in this episode. And I'm excited for people to hear it. Let's get into it. All right. Well, hello, Mike. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, it's truly my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Another Believe Network collab, which we're really excited about. So we're excited that they put you in touch with us. Yeah, me too. For sure. I love your, you You have such an amazing radio voice. Like I, I did a deep dive and found one episode that you did with um, Bert Kreischer. This was oh, like yeah. back in like 2014. And I don't know, there were so many like interesting topics that you touched on and like not only on wellness, but just like, I don't know, it, like I love the natural flow of how you do the things that you do. Thank and, you. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. When did podcasting first come to you as like something that you not necessarily just podcasting, but broadcasting in general? How, how did that go? Well, <laughs> broadcast, like broadcasting, talking into a microphone came to me, oh, gosh, around 2003. Um, and it was pretty, you know, pretty accidental, pretty, pretty organic, but certainly not a planned thing. You know, I wanted to be a musician. I want to be a rock star, like so many people is either that or actor right you know people in LA but I I really did I mean I genuinely dreamed of that's what I wanted to do it was the only thing I ever really had like a genuine passion for besides being a, a class clown and um that didn't work out for me in fact the worst possible thing happened to me that could happen is that I got a little bit of success um and I was in a, a hardcore band that like started opening up for really successful bands and I would tour and I got like a taste of it. So it kind of convinced me and it, it gave me a little bit of fuel to convince my parents that this might work out. But the lifestyle got a hold of me much more than the actual art. And I was way more into drinking and using drugs and looking for chicks at shows than I was in actually like writing music or playing music. Mm. And so when the lifestyle got, got the better of me and I moved back to LA, kind of hat in hand to my parents. Um, I got a job at K-Rock in Los Angeles as like a straight gig, like to pay the bills because I had to get a bunch of different jobs to just pay the rent. Yeah. And one of them was at a radio station, a pretty big one, pretty successful one. And I got hired at like an entry level job to just move boxes and stuff and drive the jocks around. And uh, through that, I accidentally got into this world that I that I got I got into broadcasting I became a radio DJ and a personality and that's when it all happened and when you talk about like getting into the lifestyle how did you know that you had a problem and how were you able to break out of it well I I mean you hear a lot of different stories spend enough time you know at Mm -hmm. NA meetings and AA meetings you hear everyone's story mine I think is similar to many people, but very different to others in that I, I was, there was no doubt in my mind. It wasn't, I didn't have the internal conflict of like, well, I think there might be a problem. I knew pretty early on, but I just thought I could manage it. I'm, I'm pretty genetically gifted to be an addict. You know, I'm Irish Mexican right down the middle and both sides of the family, pretty, (laughs) pretty severe alcoholism and drug addiction. I knew like I, it just became it started very innocently, kind of like everyone else's, like sneaking into mom and dad's liquor cabinet freshman year. Then it got to like drinking every weekend. Then it was drinking pretty much every day. Then it was weed, you know, every other day. Then it was weed and cocaine on the weekends. It like progressed. 
but very quickly, by the time I was like 17, 18 years old, I was like, I know this is bad. Um, it's all I think about. Just hmm. Everything else in life was just like random noise that was getting in the way of me doing what I really wanted to do. And that was get, get, get inebriated. Mm. But I, but I couldn't manage it. It worked for a while. I still friends. I, my friends were my friends. My family didn't hate me. Uh, I held down jobs and I was quote unquote popular. Like people like me, I was successful with the women. And so I didn't care. Mm -hmm. And then very quickly, like really quickly, that just became not true. Then very quickly, I was isolated all the time. All my friends had ostracized me. My parents were constantly disappointed with me and wanted, you know, just almost to, they almost had to, were fortunate to live like a lie that I was someone that I wasn't because it was too painful to like take into consideration who I really was. And so that's when I knew I had to do something about it. And, uh, and I did, I had many failed attempts, but in 2002, um, I, I chose to do, I went in, I had gone to four rehab facilities by the time I was 21. Wow. And the last one, it was my choice. And that made all the difference in the world. It really made all, it wasn't someone, it wasn't a judge. It wasn't my parents begging and pleading. It wasn't, uh, you know, like a, either jail or rehab type. It was like, I was in a motel in Inglewood smoking rocks out of tinfoil. And I looked in the mirror. I just happened to have like a mirror at the end of this cheap motel. And I saw myself and I just, for some reason, sounds so corny. I can't think of, I can't remember it in my own perspective in like a first person perspective, but I can only think of it in like a closed circuit camera, like a security camera looking down on myself. I, I can't explain it. I just got up and went to the bed where there was the yellow pages and I looked for different facilities in LA and I found one that had a bed and that was it. That was the end. That's, that's really powerful. No, thank you for sharing. Yeah. When did you turn that into your wellness fitness industry, which you're pretty outspoken about? Um, almost immediately. And I, well, I didn't turn it into something I could monetize. I didn't turn it into something with any kind of professional connection to it, but lifting weights and eating right and things like that had already been, even though I was a drug user, it was already something that I, um, was very, very passionate about because when I was graduating high school, I still lived in LA and I was getting ready to move to San Francisco to to pursue music and stuff and i i had always like lifted weights and stuff and and kind of gone through the motions because i was an athlete but i never cared about it and then that summer before i moved away i was lifting weights and i got involved with these guys at um this school at gold gym in pasadena where i was born and raised they were like the first guys i'd ever surrounded myself that like really had their shit together they were firemen and business owners, and they were all older than me. You know, I was 19, 18, they were probably in their 30s, and they were really muscular. But on top of they weren't just meatheads, they like they really had they, they had purpose in their life, and they had focus. And they always brought that through this, this prism of like going in every day. And, and they knew that like, 150 pounds always weighed 150 pounds, and their amount of work ethic, and their amount of effort and focus dictated whether or not they were able to lift it or not, you know, and, and mm -hmm. there was something so clear, and reasonable about it. And you could watch yourself get stronger, you could watch yourself make more muscle, you could watch yourself like body and it, it just, it sounds so silly to someone who maybe hasn't experienced it. But it was much more than just like biceps and abs. It was like I was doing something voluntarily 
that was very pure. There was no outside factors. It was, I was making myself better. And I felt so much more confident. I felt so much more better about myself. And it wasn't even a vanity thing. I'm sure it played a role, but it was much more about, like I could hold myself accountable for the first time in my entire life. I was a terrible student. I was a, you know, I was a good athlete, but I, I never invested myself in it. I just got away with whatever kind of natural abilities I had. And this was something that there was, I was certainly not genetically, my mom's 4'11 and like 80 pounds. My dad's really obese. So I have no gifts for like bodybuilding. I've thin bones and I'm, you know, chicken legs and stuff, but I could see myself building muscle and bit and my posture was getting better. I was standing taller and it was huge for me. It was, it was so, it, it, it alleviated psychological and emotional pain mm. as well as like giving me this physical strength. So, you know, the drugs and the alcohol obviously derailed that. But once I got sober and really committed to it, that became immediate. Like I just brought it over as a, as an integral part of me and my recovery, you know? And in 2003, when you started doing radio, are you sober by that time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And what I was, do you I was like I was like six months clean oh, wow. when I got a job at K Rock. What do you think made you such a hit on the radio? A couple things. One, I wasn't initially, and no one is. <laughs> um I was terrible at first. When I well, okay. When I first started, I they hired me because I was already doing stuff that was getting buzz around the station. I was doing the stuff that I always did since I was in kindergarten. And that was trying to figure out a way to be the class clown and get attention through those means. I was never like, I never was like a bully or like vandalized things, but I was, I was like passionate about pranks and silly, stupid stuff and being that kid in the, you know, like my high school, um, history teacher he and I become kind of friendly via Facebook and things he was always a nice guy and he said you are a disaster to teach um, because you're just you you absolutely take away the focus from the other students and you are a terrible student but you were never like I never and and the other teachers they we never disliked you we're never like a bad kid I, I always like that meant so much to me when he said that because I never wanted, I never wanted to like ruin the teacher's day. I just thought, I mean, I really would get goosebumps at the idea of like, <laughs> one time the teacher asked me to take, help him take roll and he handed me the roll sheet. And I was like, yeah, no problem. And I took a hole punch, like not a three hole punch, but like one that you hold in your hand and just like do one single. And I just hole punched the whole thing and I handed it back to him. So it was just like <laughs> a sheet of gigantic, like 3000 holes. And it's stupid, but like, I, you understand, I was on cloud nine. I was, it was so funny to me. And, and senior year when we graduated, they would do senior pranks and all the other kids would like bring their, collect their beer cans and like pour them in the quad. My friend and I rappelled down from the gym and epoxied this like two foot dildo to the top of the gym at a point where you couldn't get up. You could, there's no ladders. You had to have professional scaffolding and stuff to get up there. My friend was a good rock climber, so he had like repelling stuff. And so we did it and, we, and it, you, you have no idea. It was like the birth of my child to go up there for two weeks and just see that dildo hanging down. All the kids are laughing and stuff and the teachers couldn't do anything about it. That was more important to me than any <laughs> school assignment or any type of like sports, you know, sports achievement. 
So when I got hired to do radio, I, I found something in my life where for the first time ever since I was since the day I was born, someone not only didn't get mad at me for that kind of stuff or didn't pull their hair out, they encouraged it. They're like, please, I, I like what you've done here. Can I see some more? So I I was just so it was so euphoric. And then I got I would do those kind of stunts. And so for a while I was like really having a lot of success. Then I got on the air. Like I got a job as a broadcaster as opposed to like just this random dude who's gonna do crazy things. And when I got on the air, I was terrible. Mm -hmm. And then luckily enough, Kevin and Bean, the guys who were my boss, they were so patient and they were so their ego was so small that they weren't territorial. Like a lot or a lot of radio guys, a lot of comics, they're very territorial you know, because their work's important to them. And they, and also you, you kind of are geared to have this famine mentality in any facet of the entertainment industry. If someone else is getting something you feel like you're, it's less for you to have, they're so not, and they just encourage, they're like, dude, look, just relax a little bit. Next time it'll be better. Maybe try this, da, da. And, and gradually my heart rate would be the same 10 seconds before I got on the air and 10 seconds after. And that's when things started to kind of fall into place. So that's, it was more of just once I was able to be my really genuinely be myself, like they always say, like in any like pickup artist stuff, they're like, dude, you, you, the key is just be yourself, have confidence, like well, easier said than done. Mm. It took, you know, a lot of reps, just like it did with with girls, you know, I, you, you have your best laid plans, and then you go up to ask that girl out and you're like, blah, blah, blah. but after 30 <laughs> uh, times, it just kind of becomes part of the deal. And that's when things really started to pick up. for me. But I love what you were describing about doing what you loved as a kid because i've had conversations with friends about like the universe kind of points us in a positive direction once we kind of step into those childhood curiosities and i mean even now like my career involves books and bookmaking and like just storytelling in general and yeah. all facets of around that um i'm just really grateful that a lot of opportunities that i've been able to get involved with have really just allowed that child inside to like continue living and thriving in a variety of ways but i know you've had some interesting experiences with hosting too so can you tell us a little bit about what it was like hosting live with kelly ripa and to be on dancing with the stars well like it's it's a it's a mixed bag mm -hmm. and what i mean by that is like hosting with kelly i don't know how to say this without sounding obnoxious but it was so easy mm -hmm. because by that point i'd been on the radio for a decade and I'll, they're like, they fly you to New York and you're on the air for like now 40 minutes in an hour long show. And there's a team of producers who do all the hard work, all the fun, unfun stuff for you. And I was like, wait, I go out there and I talk and here's my bullet points. And mm -hmm. then when I kick to commercial, there's a script on the camera and I just read like, this is so freaking easy. Yeah. And Kelly Rip is amazing she's one there's a reason why she gets paid the big bucks and why she's had her job for so long she's so good at that and it was it was easy so they kept asking me back um that was amazing i love doing that but there's other hosting gigs that i don't like and then all the all the amazing fun stuff like you said about following your childhood passions that worked out for me here's my childhood trappings getting me in trouble again because i i I probably could have been a pretty good literature student or philosophy student because it interests me and stuff, but I don't like doing stuff I don't like to do, even if it's for a job. Like, I don't, I don't, I know I just, 
paper is due tomorrow, but I don't want to do this because I don't like, you know, I, 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 it's a very infantile, very immature uh, characteristic that I have where it's like, well, I don't, but I don't want to do this. So I'm not going to do this. And I don't want to talk about celebrity news. And even though Access Hollywood and Entertainment Tonight are going to pay me like impossible amounts of money to read this teleprompter, I was like, I don't like this and I don't want to mm -hmm. do it. So there was, there was a, it was a very mixed bag, you know, but there was other situations like hosting stuff where I just can't, can't explain it, how amazing, even, even the jobs that I, that I look back on, I was like, well, I don't really want to be good at this or get, continue doing this. All the people around me were always so cool. I have zero negative things to say about anyone I've ever had anything to do with in the showbiz industry. Everyone I've worked with has always been so cool. All the people, especially people behind the scenes. So in that regard, the experiences were always great. I just, I if I was 40, I'm 44 now, I just turned. If I could have taken what I know now and back then, I'd be like, yeah, so you don't like it. This isn't your favorite thing in the world. You're not talking about MMA. Okay, I understand. But just show up, don't phone it in. There's a lot of people that are counting on you to do this and you, you hit the jackpot. Like this is a great paycheck for very little work. Show up and do your job. And, and I never, I, I didn't take that ethic into a lot of the jobs that I did. Yeah. So with all of these experiences, how do you turn this into your podcast? And how has that been different from everything that you were doing before? In many ways, it's different in a lot in, in, in a positive fashion. In many ways, it's, it's been really negative or, or not negative. It's been really hard. Yeah. The really positive fashion is that I don't have anyone telling me what to say or what I can't say. And that's extraordinary. And it may sound silly to a lot of people listening to this, especially in Canada and America, where you're like, well, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. It's not like you're in, you know, Soviet, you know, Russia in the, in the 50s. You can say what you know. I was like, no, nah, trust me. When I was working at CNN, when I was working at NBC Universal, like you cannot say what you want all the time. And you certainly have to say a lot of stuff that you're, you're suspicious of. Podcasts. And that's why I love radio too. It's like, at least in the fashion that I worked in a radio for the first half of my career, I, I just, there was me in the microphone and on the other end, there was people listening and I got to have a relationship with them. Really intimate. It was really beautiful. Then I got into doing talk radio, AM talk radio, like a political leaning and that it was just more of the same. And, you know, if you said the wrong thing, even if it was nuanced and it wasn't even particularly controversial, there's going to be a scat of people that just want to yell at you about it mm. in either direction. You know, this is not a political statement. If you say something about guns, believe me, there's a bunch of more left-wing people that are going to call up and they're going to yell at me. If I say anything about gay stuff, there's a bunch of people on the right that are going to call up and yell at me, you know? And so it was, it was not a, a, there was no partisan kind of connection to it. When I got on my podcast and I did it kind of to kill the time once the pandemic started, I loved that, you know, Braun who runs Believe got in contact with me. We were friendly before, before he got into the broadcasting business he's like you know, you ever thought about doing a podcast i was like kind of but you know especially back then as we're talking 2000 18 mm -hmm. as a guy in radio you always look at podcasters as like someone you had to make your way all around the bases and you're starting on third thinking that you hit a home run you know pocket mm -hmm. it's like i just i bought a microphone at guitar center and now i'm a podcaster <laughs> it's like no i had to like really go through a crucible to get the opportunity to have a microphone where people listen to me you know so i always kind of had this weird old fashioned bias. Yeah. But I started doing it, I started loving it. And I started liking that aspect of it. What I don't like about it is that I don't have a sales team and a production team and all these people yeah. around me. Because that was another thing about radio is like, 
they hand select these people who can make it through, can make it to the top to be able to get to that job. And once you do, they're like, okay, your responsibility is show up and create great content. We'll take care of the rest. We'll bring you all the commercials. You greet them. You will sign your paychecks. You do that. We'll market you. We'll put up the billboards. And with podcasting, it's really, that's, that's your job too. I'm not very good at that. So that's, you know, but it's forced me to find different parts of myself and, and work on my weaknesses, which is kind of essential to grow as a human being. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I can totally relate to not liking what to be told yeah. to do. Like I, I can, Oh, it's like gets under my skin. It's like nails on a chalkboard when I get that sense of like, Oh, uh, it's when it leans toward that in the conversation, but. And it wasn't like, it wasn't, I started to interrupt, but it wasn't like I was that punk kid. that was like, I'm not, I'm not doing what you tell me. Right. No. You know, like you ask any coach I've ever had in any sport, they would say like, oh, this guy, I never talked back. You know why? Because I liked being in football practice. Mm -hmm. yeah. I signed up to be there. But, you know, the other stuff that it was kind of obligatory, that's where I got into the position where they're like, and this this paper is due tomorrow. And I'd be like, no, that's, that's not. I'm going yeah. to play a PlayStation. And well, that's what I was going to say to you, because I think like podcasting i don't think people realize how much goes in on the back end that like right. you are your sales team you are your editor um unless you're hiring those people which we're lucky enough that we did hire help but we had to hire that help because like we couldn't do it on our yeah, at the own. beginning you didn't yeah exactly yeah. No, you can you you earn the right to be able to just focus on the content but you have to earn that right you know that's yeah. and that that's what i always what people who aren't in that they don't have the behind the scenes look people want to talk crap about Ryan Seacrest or the Paul brothers, you know, what, whoever makes a big splash in whatever kind of facet of broadcasting there is when it comes to talking to a microphone or talking to a camera, if people make it big, everyone's going to kind of be jealous, talk shit about them. And I was like, dude, you may not like what they're doing. You may not like the, the content. That's fine. That's your, that's an, that's a subjective thing, but you have no idea how they earned that. So you like, you know how hard they had to work, how much ingenuity, how much effort, ambition goes into just getting to the point where you could be that successful. So I think that that's a, definitely a misunderstood aspect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some of your goals with the podcast uh, you currently have? <laughs> my goal with Mikey Likes You, honestly, was I had so many people that would come up to me in my personal life, so many. And they would ask me fitness and nutrition questions. And 90% of them would say, like, really, that's, that's kind of the basis of what I need to do? And I go, yes. <laughs> I always thought, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of scared away by it. Like, you know, I think women would say, like, that's for those CrossFit chicks on Instagram. That's not for me. And guys would say, like, I'm an attorney. You know, I'm 40 times three years old, like that's for those roided out monsters. I see that's not for me. And I was like, I need to have a, like a bigger platform to let everybody know. It's like, no, no, it's for you. The only thing that separates people who take their shirt off at the pool or get their bikini on at the summer and people go, ooh, and ah, and the average person is just their decision to do it. That's mm -hmm. it. That's it is that they believed it was for them. Just like those we were talking about, like me and my struggles as a student. The only separation between me and the kids that got A's was they believed that they could do that, that that was for them. And I, I was like, well, that's not for me. I'm an idiot. I'm a loser and I don't do that. So I'm going to sit in the back of the class and make jokes. 
the reality is, is like, if any of the people at any age, regardless, you know, I'm sure there are certain extreme handicaps and things that come into play, but for the most part, it's like, it, this is for you. And it's not about you. Maybe no one's going to look like Mr. Universe, but you can have the performance or the body or the level of health that you've always dreamed of doing. You just have to convince yourself that you, that you can do it and that it's for you and that you're worth it. And that majority of people don't majority of people think that like, I'm just Joe six pack and this is my life. This is, this is my reality. And this is what I'm relegated to. And it's like, no, if you want it, you, you can absolutely have it. And it's not even, it's difficult in as far as effort, but it's not difficult as far as putting one foot in front of the other and just keep, just don't quit, you know, keep showing up. What's some of your most common wellness and nutrition advice? Voltaire said that perfect is the enemy of good. And I think because of TikTok and Instagram and YouTube and everything, people have this notion that they have this, have this elaborate, complicated training program with this incredibly nuanced diet. And my biggest, my biggest pet peeve is that people get scared away by that. And when in reality, I was like, dude, find a caloric set point that works for you to fit your goal. Find a way to make it sustainable to stick to that, whether it be higher fat, lower carb, or plant-based, whatever it may be, whatever is like really realistic and sustainable for you, up your protein, hit those calories, and continue doing it for a long period of time. And like, th there's that aspect of it that it's like, you know, really just some solid focused progressive weight training with a really good measured nutritional approach. And then on top of that, I hate how people assume justifiably because of like action stars talking about getting ready for roles and all that, that they have to eat food they hate. Mm. Like that's, this is, it's a, so I'm just, I have to eat boiled chicken breast and broccoli forever or else I'm never going to look good or feel good. And the reality is like, no, no, no. You just have to control the amount of the foods you do love and maybe make some changes here and there. Like no one's going to see any benefit from beer and Doritos. But, you know, if you, if you just remove some of the, you know, if you make a homemade pizza and add a little bit more like solid protein sources on top of it and maybe don't have 20 slices, you have three or four. And you, like, you know what I'm saying? Like people need to understand, like you can eat foods that you genuinely find delicious. You just have to take a little bit more control of the food instead of letting food take control of you. you know? When you were getting sober, what did you see as like some common mistakes that other people who you were maybe like getting sober around or getting with, like, what do you think that people like misunderstand or do wrong when they're on that journey? Well, there's the stuff that I did wrong. <laughs> I probably still do. And one of the biggest ones is like, I, 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 I've still at, at moment, I'll be sober 21 years in wow. October. And uh, yeah, I still flirt with this feeling of not letting myself down or not letting myself forgive myself. Mm. Like I still have trouble sleeping at night, Rent, you know, certainly less frequently than in the beginning, but where I'm like, you're just a piece of shit. You're a dishonest, lying junkie. And I can't that internal narration is still very toxic hmm. and the shame cycle is very, very hard when you're trying to get clean because 
drugs and alcohol make you into the person that you're not. Mm-hmm. And I definitely, and they definitely did that to me. And I, I still think like, oh, I'm still that guy though, you know? And so that's a big mistake that I've made and still do. <laughs> um, another one is to think that you're no, this, this one was really big for me, especially considering the environment that I came from. And it's really big for a lot of young people. And it's that I'm no longer cool if I can't use drugs or drink alcohol. There's no, I'm going to be a boring loser that no one wants to hang out with because I'm not edgy or cool because I don't get high and I don't get drunk. Like, what's the point of being, you know, when I was 21, it's like, am I seriously never going to go get hammered with my friends or go to after parties and troll for chicks? You know, like that's, that was, and Certainly, it's easy now. I'm a grown ass man. I'm an old man with a family, so it's pretty easy to go like, "Yeah, I, I really don't want to do that." And uh, I'm really pretty sure I'm pretty cool not doing that at 44 years old. Mm-hmm. And when you're 21, 22, 23, it's hard. You're college age. It's really hard to kind of look in the mirror and be like, "I'm still, I'm still an exciting, cool dude." When I don't, you know, when I don't party, um, and that's a big mistake because exciting cool people because they party uh don't make it to their 40s and if they do they're pathetic you know Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. any of the legendary rock stars these i I read a lot of biographies and autobiographies of rock stars because i'm like i still have that happy gilmore thing where it's like oh i still (laughs) want to be you know this mr rock but you know you talk to steven tyler or dave Grohl or any of these people who really do it None of them are romanticizing the idea of partying on tour. They go like, no, actually, it's gross. Jones, uh, Jonesy, Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols, guitar player for the Sex Pistols. He transitioned after the Sex Pistols ended. He had a pretty impressive solo career. He made a lot of good music, but uh, now he's become a radio guy. And he hosts a, a radio show based out of Los Angeles on KLOS uh, talking about rock stuff, you know, kind of rock oriented. And he and I became very good friends because he also is in recovery and he's a radio guy so we just you know we got along very well and he said something to me uh that always stuck with me and i always like to tell people this because i think it's important for younger people especially younger people who aspire to be edgy and cool he said you know everyone looks at sid vicious like oh he's so legendary he's you know sid and nancy it's so cool it's like the modern day romeo and juliet and he played by his own rules and he you know and he was a nonconformist. And he's like, no, actually, it's fucking gross. That was my friend. And he was beautiful and he was talented and he had so much going for him. And he's fucking dead. There's nothing cool. There's nothing romantic about it at all. And me and Johnny Rotten, and we all sit back and we're like, it's disgusting. And uh, I just wish people could get it through their head. Like, you know, like when I see ba- when Bad Religion used to come on Love Line or the Foo Fighters. Um, you know, fill you know, any of these kind of like landmark rock bands, Coldplay, it doesn't matter the genre. You see these guys come in, they come in, they show up early, they're on the phone with their wife and their kids. They're like, oh, no, no, I'll be home by, I'll be home by midnight. Don't try. Okay. They're not in there like showing up late doing bumps, you know, key bumps off the, off their, um, you know, newest record because that's Hollywood nonsense. Mm-hmm. It's not reality. Jim Morrison uh, was an incredibly talented guy just like Hemingway and just like, you know, uh, you know, fill in, like there's a laundry list of these people, Hunter S. Thompson. You can go download regardless of like what form of art, 
John Michael Basquiat. You, you, you can look at all these people who had amazing levels of talent and charisma and everything, and it's all over. And there's nothing cool about that. Yeah. It's, and the people who do happen to survive and make it in, it's, it's gross and pathetic. And you see those guys at Coachella who are like 50, like, yo, where's the Molly at? You're like, that's, is, that, is that what you're aspiring for? Because that's, what, that's what's going to happen. If you think at 25, like that's your future, that's, that's who you're going to be, not some bon vivant that everybody's going to admire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I go to Coachella with my dad, actually. <laughs> but just like have a lovely time. It's just the two of us. It's like actually like a father daughter activity. I'm, I'm just kidding. I go to Coachella and I'm an old, I'm an old part, but you don't see me like, you know, in the, yeah, yeah, in the Sahara tent, like, yeah, where's the Molly? Where's the GHB? Cause it's sad. Cause like, you know, and I wear my polo shirt and I, yeah. my Hank William shirt. And I'm like, all right, well, I, I came to see Rage Against the Machine. I'm a, I got to be in bed by eight. You know? yeah. yeah, my dad leaves me at eight o'clock and I like, exactly. I'm my friend. You know? he's, like he's, a, he's a grown ass man. You know, my point, yeah. And I'm not saying you, oh, it's, it's, you're not cool if you don't go to bed early. What I'm saying is, is that it, the whole romanticization of addiction is, is gross. And it's not what leads you to be cool. And frankly, when I was using and drinking, and I was trying my hardest to be cool. There was this handful of people who I would see who were my age or my peers close enough in age who weren't partying and were going home early and working on some amazing project or had some bug up their ass that was just, and they're like, no, 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 I think I can do this. Um, I grew up in, in the east side in the Pasadena area. And this is the 90s. So this is before any of them became famous. But those, the jackass guys were kind of in, I wasn't like, oh, they're my best friends, but they were in my network because I was hanging with the skate punks in the Pasadena area and Big Brother Magazine was headquartered in Pasadena. So here and there, I would see those dudes. And it was just before Jackass, the TV show, this is before any of it. And you would see them out there and some of them were crazy and some of them were partying like crazy. And some, but then I would be a 17-year-old, 18-year-old guy and I was like, who is that dude? That dude's got something about him. And he was like 22, but he was wearing like a tie. And he always had these crazy ideas and he would try things. And he had these cutting edge ideas with photography. And he, would, and he would quote literature, but wasn't doing it in like a pretentious way. He would just off the top. He's like, you know, I was, I was reading, you know, Plato and I was thinking about how we could apply blah, blah, blah. Spike Jones. Mm. And it just goes, he was not. Staying out to 3 a.m. Do they, you know, I'm sure maybe he does that every once in a while. But my point is, is that even when he was young, there was a thing where he, me as a 17 year old guy who looked up to, you know, Johnny Rotten and, and Sid Vicious, I was like looking at that guy. I was like, man, there's something so special and charismatic. And there's a handful of those experiences where you see the people who didn't want to play that game. And lo and behold, they ended up being way cooler than anybody yeah. else, you know, that falls into that kind of play by their own rules category. Now that you have a family and the goats, which I want to hear more about, um, yeah. um, how has like your life and entertainment changed? What you're willing to share, what your balance looks like, all of that. My, my, my content wise has changed very minimally because I was never a guy who was like a fire breather on the mic or in front of a camera, like, pow, let me come at you with my amazing waxy stories. I always kind of fell into success by just being more of myself. Like I, Jack Kerouac said uh, a very limited amount of interviews he did. He, he was talking about his writing 
And he said, all I have to offer my readers is my mistakes. And that he would let his imperfections um, kind of shine through in the pages. Mm -hmm. And a lot of his characters were very autobiographical, even though they would go by different names. They were clearly just facsimiles of him and his life. And people took to that. And I always felt like I never, ever dreamed of being like Seacrest or Mario Lopez. I like both of those. I, Mario, especially. I like them personally very much. They're very cool guys. Seacrest is really cool. But I never, like, that never appealed to me. I always wanted to be the guy who walked around Dodger Stadium and, like, the locals were like, you know, Psycho Mike, what's up? You know, and come take a picture. And that, you know, so having like that worldwide fame or be big celebrity status never really appealed to me. I just wanted to be like an everyman hero and uh, having it like achieving that was always really special to me. And like, that was what I always dreamed of. I, I would, I would spend all my time where like, if I did really big kind of high, high price tag TV shows, you know, dancing with stars or entertainment tonight, or when I was working with them, I always spent all my time talking to the cameramen and the gaffers hmm. and stuff because I want to talk surfing and MMA with those guys. I didn't really, nothing against the people who are making seven figures doing that. I just didn't care. I, I want. I really did want to, I was like, dude, I drove my GTO today. I have a 66 GTO. You want to go see it? And the camera would be like, fuck yeah. They brought, that was that was really important to me. And I, that's always what I wanted. So it certainly hasn't changed in that regard at all, all now. The only thing that's changed is like, I think about, I I really mean it when I say like I without being an exhibitionist I allow my all my imperfections to just kind of come through and I think people appreciate that but sometimes when I talk about some of the stupider crazier stuff that I've done I think like well one day my daughter's going to hear this or one day this might be embarrassing to my daughter and that gets me in a weird place where I'm like well maybe I won't say that cuz not because I give a shit, but I think like somewhere down the line that might be embarrassing to her. So what are some of the things that you do? You mentioned going to sleep by eight o'clock. What are some other uh, parts of your morning routine or healthy habits that you incorporate on a daily basis with not only a family, but a farm and all that you're managing in life? I think like I'm really bad about my etiquette with recovery in general, whether besides eat, my, I, I have a, a very consistent diet of, and, and, and I don't avoid donuts and pizza because I know it's bad for me. I genuinely have gotten to the point in my life where I like, I want to eat foods that make me feel good and help me perform. And it, I know like I attach so much of my mental health to it that I don't feel any animus in being like, no guys, I don't really want that. The, the, the Buffalo wings while we watch football. I'm really happy with this steak that I just grilled. Like I genuinely feel better that way. I have a meditation practice that I keep to, but I should be better about it. I, I'm consistent, but I should do more and I should be more focused with it. I just have my breathing exercises and I, I, I adhere to that. But the thing that I think is most crucial for me outside of training and eating, the biggest thing, and I encourage everyone to do this uh, at all costs, is I have a lot of things in my life now that aren't professional and they aren't for my um, fitness and they they, it's not based around training and eating that I'm super passionate about 
that have nothing to do with anything anybody's forcing me to do. It doesn't make me money. It doesn't, uh, it's not an obligatory thing. The government doesn't make me do it. Is it my, the animals here on the farm, if I don't get up at a certain time and feed them, if I don't go and check on them at night, like, they will die. They rely on me. And I'm super passionate about it. And I love seeing them grow healthier. And it means a lot to me. And I have these things, these like, handful of things in my life. It's not like, like I said, it's not my family. It's not my professional life. It's, a, it's something voluntary and outside of that, that it brings me a lot of joy. And I'm super passionate about it. And that keeps me pretty squared away. So I think it's a good time to get into our DM questions. Alejandro, I'll let you take it away. Yes, please. Will you tell us what is the funniest or wildest or most intriguing or perhaps most inspirational DM that you've ever received? The most, the wildest is without question from, I don't know how, I'm certainly not mad at it. I'm actually quite flattered, but I am so popular with gay dudes. And I get some wild ass DMs from gay dudes, like wild. Like oh, I'm gross. <laughs> I'm gross and I'm horny. I never think to send some of the stuff that I get from some gay dudes. Um, so those are the wildest ones. Huh. Most inspirational one <clears throat> has to be related to, I've been really fortunate. I've gotten probably like a dozen or so addiction related ones where people will say like, you know, I, I'm 60 days clean. I'm two years clean. And you absolutely played a big role. You were a big inspiration or you were a big help in guiding me in that direction. That That is so meaningful. Like, I, I mean, I'm probably tear up now just thinking about it. But, like, you can't put that into words, like, what that would mean. Because, like, I had the best possible situation going in. Loving family from a reasonably affluent uh, environment where, you know, affluent enough that, like, every time I got to the point where I had to be put in rehab, my dad would be like, whatever you need, son, write a check. And my parents are still together and they're loving. And they were always like, whatever we can do to help you get, get healthy. Great family around me outside of my parents. Amazing friend network, the whole thing. And it was fucking impossible. So to know that there are some people, most people are, don't have those luxuries. And to know that I could have played some small role into making that process a little easier is so just beyond scope important to me and, and meaningful wow. it's beautiful yeah that's a i mean that's such a powerful position to be in to, yeah, to yeah. be a beacon of hope and i'm sure it is always surprising whenever something new pops up and you get like this an affirmation of you doing the work that is necessary, not only for yourself, but for many others who are listening. That's cool. Yeah. And like, that's, that's one of the things that I would say, like, as far as like wellness goes, one of the problems I see with like the industry as a whole, there's this form of Japanese pottery. Um, I, for, I, I wish I could remember the name or else this would be a lot better story if I could remember mm -hmm. the actual, uh. <laughs> but there's a form of, of pottery uh, as artwork where they build these beautiful vases or statues and then they break them on purpose. And then they highlight the cracks with gold leaf. Hmm. They, they accentuate the cracks and the, and the imperfections from shattering them on purpose. And the whole point being that they think the beauty in this art is actually where it's broken and where it has been mended. And I always thought about that with life and living a happy, healthy life is that I don't know how much it helps people to only put on your feed or only put on your blog or only put on your show 
all these amazing positive things that happened to you in your life, the putting a catalog of the perfect, amazing workouts that you crushed and how you've had nothing but like alkaline water and help all day. And you and your kids are always happy. You never fight. And me and my husband have the best life ever. And my sex is amazing. It's like that shit is just so synchronous and like, I don't know the connection that many people who are are genuinely struggling are going to find with that. And I don't know the hope that it's going to lead people to. Mm. Whereas if you are someone that people can look at that is in a position that they would aspire to, and then at that point say, and then, oh, my fucking wife was going to kill me last night because fill in the blank. And I feel like such, I feel so inadequate as a man because I did blah, blah, blah. And right now I'm struggling so much because blah, 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 blah. And like I said earlier, not being an exhibitionist about it, but just to be honest and open about those cracks in them. That's where I see like a lot of potential for the thing that we call like self-help or wellness, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's like one of my favorite quotes, which is even the broken crayons in the box can still color. Yeah, it's true. I just thought that was so cute. Yeah. I love that. And I like that what you're described with the pottery being smashed intentionally and then having the cracks highlighted with gold, it reminds me of what you were talking about as far as your love of Kerouac's writing and having the mistakes shine through or the flawed characters, the traits that they may possess um, being like part of the experience, part of the lesson, part of the journey that uh, one is yeah. supposed to absorb. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's why I always loved, uh, I'm, wearing my, I'm wearing a Hank Williams shirt right now. And then people, I, you know, I, I didn't just adopt this because I moved to Texas, but since I was a little kid, you know, I loved the Pixies and I loved, you know, Metallica and Pantera. And I, I had all my things, that, but I always was into Waylon Jennings. I was always into Johnny Cash. I was always into kind of classic outlaw country because these were like these super tough, no offense, but these guys were maniacs, hard drinking, hard living. They loved the ladies. They loved to, they loved to, you know, their pickup trucks and they were tough. They were tough dudes, but they would make this music that was like unquestionably super vulnerable. They would always talk about the heartbreak and how difficult the struggle was to go on. And that was always so much more appealing to me than like the hip hop ethic of like always talking about how omnipotent uh, and perfect you were, you know? And like, I, not, not, nothing against hip. I always, it's really great like to work out to. But my point being is like the, the connection though is that you see these guys that like get all the chicks and have millions of dollars and everything, but they would talk still about the fact that it's like, yeah, no, I feel like a little boy. I feel like I can't, I'm not, you know, I feel inadequate i feel like a loser i feel like and that was like always super super meaningful yeah and i think that's been changing a lot too because i know like jack harlow and Drake have recently come out with talking about therapy during their songs so i think that like that the hip-hop industry is really starting to adapt and start to talk more about like the struggles that they face like i think drake has a line from his new album that talks about like he has so much money now that he's not even relatable um and how yeah. he's had to like adjust his content so i think yeah, it's no, well, like hey, that's yeah. a good story i could tell you that as far as like a crazy celebrity story i think um I was interviewing Lady Gaga for uh, A Star is Born. I was at the Toronto Film Festival uh, for Access Hollywood. And I was talking to her. And um, she was saying, like, playing this role was really meaningful to her. But it was also kind of eye-opening. She's like, because I had to try to pretend to be normal. Mm. She's like, I'm not normal. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to say I'm special. I'm different, but I'm not normal. I'm fucking Lady Gaga. I fly in private jets and everyone tells me yes to everything I do. And I wear 
$30,000 worth of clothes just to go walk the dog. You know, like I'm not a normal person. And I was like, oh, wow. It was like, it was very, I, 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 I admired her a lot because of that level of self-awareness. Cause like so many celebrities who are, have achieved that very not normal status will try to always do like, oh, you should see me when I wake up. I look like, it's like, mm -hmm. shut up. You know, like you're, you could buy an island right now. Like you're not a normal <laughs> person. <laughs> so our dm of the week asks and you've kind of touched on this but we'll see maybe you have a different answer um asks what's been the hardest challenge you've been through and how did you overcome it uh getting clean for sure without question yeah i mean I, i'd love to think of like something a little bit more elaborate or adventurous but it, like when the thing you love more than anything else in the world gets to the point where you're like you have to come to grips with never doing that again this is so fucking hard um you know i i get <clears throat> and um people who have never experienced addiction have a hard time understanding that and i always get like people are always like it's not real disease i a lot of people assume that i would get upset or angry when i, I was like no i totally get it if you don't if you don't know then you don't understand like how desperate you feel because like i love i didn't know i could love stuff the way i love my wife and my daughter like mm -hmm. i love them so much i just i can't i can't express properly how much i love my family but i can't tell you with full confidence that i love them more than meth and cocaine and whiskey wow like, i really can't say that and with full honesty that's how much i love like goosebumps near orgasm level of love for it and then you get to you got to try to come to grips with like i can't do that anymore i can't have that in my life it's really hard yeah yeah that's really hard i think that's such a great way to put it too and i think that it's so important for people to see people at your level of success just being so honest about it and being able to say like yeah i really really loved that thing but now i'm going to live the rest of my life not with that thing because i know that it's important and it's the right thing to do yeah, and it's like, or you just, you won't live like whether or not you want to uh, agree with the technical definition that addiction is a disease. Fine, it's a fatal disease though. Mm -hmm. So have your fun, enjoy it, get, make all the excuses you want. You you will die. It may not be tomorrow, but it's coming. You know, and do I have to? Can you 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 brought a pip up? I think it's been it's unfortunate the circumstances around it, but especially like so, a lot of these SoundCloud kids, they're dead. Mm. Mac Miller's fucking dead. Know. You know, Lil Zan, you go down the list. They're like, I don't know, no, Lil Zan's still alive. The other Lil, Lil died. Uh, but he got murdered. But I'm, there's all these kids that are dying. You know, the fentanyl, Percocet, the lean, and it's like, they're not 50. These are kids in their 20s and they're dead. And, uh, you know, Post Malone is very open. He's like, I would be dead if I didn't change things. It's like, I, I don't know where like the, the disconnect becomes where it's like, oh, this is what you're aspiring for. This is what you think is cool. You know, it's a fatal disease. You will die. Tom Sizemore just died. I knew Tom Sizemore. Mm. Um, and I knew him sober and I knew him when he was trying. And that's like, it breaks my heart because <clears throat> some celebrities that I would know from the rooms, it's always sad, but you, you, you go like, well, that guy never. Right. But some, it's heartbreaking because I, I saw it. I saw how hard they tried. DJ AM was my idol. DJ AM mm -hmm. was my idol. When I first got clean, he was so 
loving and caring for everyone before like i i just knew him he, i knew he was in the music industry but I, he hadn't like blown up the way he was maybe behind the scenes he had produced other stuff but he wasn't like a recognizable thing so early on like i saw this guy he was everything to me he's he was constantly he would show up he would drive these like two hundred thousand dollar cars but he would come in and never interrupt anybody he would take he was super invested in the meetings and everything and I, I always looked at him and how kind he was and how like charitable he was with everyone around him and uh and dj am's dead from drugs wow he fell off the wagon and he died like that you know and like that was the guy i looked up to as far as like getting clean you know like so it's it's like i hate to make it like such a dark take such a dark turn but it just the reality of it is like yeah everyone everyone it's fun and games everyone's college age you you go you push that envelope but like lest we forget especially now with like modern designer drugs where fentanyl is getting introduced and the bar and the benzodiazepines mixed with the painkillers and stuff like like you will die like make no mistake like it's a deadly cocktail mm. you know well on a positive note, yes. where can our listeners stay updated? Why don't you share with us too when we can catch new episodes on the podcast? Any social media handles that you want to let us in yeah. on? I'm at Mike Cathwood on uh, Instagram. That's always the best place to kind of find me and find out the stuff I'm, that's going down with me. Mikey likes you once a week. And, um, you know, I've got other stuff cooking that'll hopefully come to fruition. Um, I'm always trying to like work on things that I can get back to doing like that childlike love that I have and figure out a way to get paid for it. You know, I think like we talked about that oh, yeah. always cool. But uh Mikey likes you on YouTube and then wherever you get your podcasts. Uh and then also like I said, if you're ever just curious or interested at Mike Catherwood is is the best place to find. Awesome. Thank oh, you yeah. so much, Mike. This was so much fun. I appreciate Thank it. You. It was, it was. It was really enjoyable. Thank you, YouTube. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Damsels in the DMs. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you like listening to your podcast. That really helps us to continue to make more content for you all. That's it. We are waiting for your DMs, your letters, your subscriptions, your reviews, anything. Keep us updated. Tell us what you want to hear. And do not forget to send us the DM of the week. They're always so titillating when they arrive. And we're eager to share with our guests. And it always provides a, a nice, interesting pivot of conversation. So let's do the damn thing. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for <laughs> tuning in to another episode of Damsels in the DMs. Until next time. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. DMs, DMs. We don't need them. We just leave them. Please. Yeah. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.